Hello, welcome back. I'm Roger Royce, host of the 10,000 Startups podcast. And I'm here today with Christopher Mason and Dr. Ian Oxnavad uh, to talk about a topic that you might not think about so much in the startup world, but is becoming more and more important, and that's global risk, especially as it comes to due diligence. So if you're an investor looking at a company, you've got a big, long due diligence list. Uh, one of the things that should be on that due diligence list, it certainly probably wasn't 20 years ago, was global risk and risk management because we live in a different kind of world these days. So Chris and Ian, they're with a company called Riskology and they help with due diligence, but they also help with assessment of risk uh, throughout the world, for especially for our international startups that might launch in the U.S. and find uh, technology support in China and uh, maybe software engineers in India and markets in Europe and are all over the world almost immediately. So welcome, guys. This is going to be a really interesting topic because we've never done anything really on this topic before, and we should, for sure. So I think I'd like to start. Maybe you could tell me a little bit uh, well, let me introduce you first of all. So, so Christopher Mason, he's the Vice President of Global Compliance and Investigations at Inportal Worldwide. He leads the international investigations team and works with clients to coordinate due diligence investigations um, to facilitate private equity investment, M&A, and business expansion. He's also a lawyer. He's got a background investigating financial crime in the U.S. government. Uh, Dr. Ian Oxnavad, I hope I pronounced that right, is Director of Geopolitical Risk at Infortel Worldwide. He leads the firm's uh, geopolitical risk intelligence and analysis efforts. Um, <clears throat> he also works with the GPR training program, due to diligence investigations, uh, and risk advisory services. He's a political scientist and political economist. Uh, where he examines issues of risk, economic warfare, intelligence, terrorism, corporate espionage, and money laundering. So let's start out by maybe you should tell me why would a startup have to worry about all of this stuff? It sounds pretty cloak and dagger when you read it on the website. It can be pretty mundane, actually. Uh, the best way to think about it is when you're thinking about geopolitical risk, especially if you're a startup or you're looking to invest in a new market, your your risk tolerance is going to be very different than that of an established company that already has exposure to supply chains and capital markets overseas and different macroeconomic trends. So you're going to be more wary just by by nature. But when you think about geopolitical risk, geopolitical risk really takes into account the fact that there is no such thing as a global economy in reality in operations. Every jurisdiction is going to be different. Every country has a different uh, method of raising capital for companies. You're going to have the presence of state-backed enterprises in certain places where you would not in the U.S. You're going to have different business cultures where things like corruption or sexual harassment or bribery or uh, terrorism risks are going to vary from one place to another. You're going to have different levels of geopolitical conflict risk that could affect your supply chains, whether that be in East Asia. Right now, uh, we're kind of maybe hopefully not on the cusp of World War III, but uh, a lot of indicators point to that. That can affect your ability to raise capital. That can affect your data security, because if you're an American company, 
even if you have no exposure to China whatsoever, if there is some sort of conflict, you're going to be in the crosshairs of Russian hackers who could be uh, in, backed by Vladimir Putin. You could be attacked by a Chinese enterprise to from a hacking attack that's backed by or owned by the Chinese government, or it could be simply hacktivists who are motivated by some sort of ideological uh, you know, motivation that could affect your, your data security. So it affects all of these things because every jurisdiction is a different ecosystem. And that different ecosystem in each case provides different opportunities and risks that you're going to have to manage. And that's where we come in and help you understand that and also how to mitigate that, strategize around it, and hopefully minimize your liability. Can I ask, who, who, what kind of companies would be most vulnerable to, to, to that parade of horribles <laughs> that you just trotted out there? I mean, any of them, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, you could have a hospital in the United States that has no supply chain you know, efforts across the world but could still be the center of a of an Iran-based, you know, hack attack. Or you could have a company in the US that could be affected by energy prices. So something as simple as a, a trucking company in the United States, if Venezuela decides to unilaterally annex the Esquibo region of Guyana, which they are about to do, that's going to drive up energy costs because it's going to cause a supply chain uh, glut or a crimp in the supply chain for energy. You could look at attacks in the Red Sea and how that could affect shipping in the Suez Canal. It's going to affect insurance rates. So if you think about this few steps back, any company, any entity is exposed to this, whether they believe it or not. So it's a matter of knowing how these different risks affect your bottom line, how they affect your shareholders, how they affect your ability to raise capital, uh, something as simple as inflation. What would a war with China do to your ability to raise capital? Gotcha. Or access for customers. So it's not just the direct sort of risk, it's also more indirect. For example, um, you know, we're all worried about hacks into our hack, hacking to any company, hacking, but especially into something like the food system, which has happened now a couple of times. But there, and that's pretty obvious. People know about that, they expect it, they guard against it. But you're also talking about more indirect. Uh, yeah. things that are just going to have a downstream effect uh, on a particular company. Is that what you would do in due diligence is say, look, you, you might not know it, but you do have this risk. Um, it, it can be. Yeah. So we could come in prior to a transaction to help, um, you know, weed out any risks related to that specific transaction, but could also be what is my exposure uh, to the a given risk emerging in a different part of the world how does that affect my operation so that you have the advanced warning needed to prepare for it? So if you flash back several years, people were asking me about COVID. Uh, you hear, heard about the outbreak in China. Wuhan is an industrial center in China. Uh, China has been very faulty with its data, uh, often on purpose. And that, that raises a lot of questions. And if you look at how COVID emerged, it emerged with alongside trade patterns that Go back to the Silk Road era. You saw Italy, B Iran being hit very hard early on. Those were warning indicators that it was not only going international, but also how it was affecting business. So if you were an American company and you had a month, three weeks advanced warning, and you saw this was emerging, someone like us could come in and say, okay, this is what happened in 1918. This is the best that you know you could probably possibly wrap your head around. How do you mitigate these risks? 
how what could what's the worst that could happen and you could try to harden your business or move out of the way maybe you'll find another supply chain a lot of companies related to china are doing this now they're looking at india vietnam latin america reshoring to the united states so all these things are macro uh it, it may not have a direct effect but in fact it does yeah, that was going to be in my next question. Like, now we know about the risk. What do we do about it? I mean, is there a remediation? Or I guess you said you could mitigate. Is that part of what you would do as well as advise on how to maybe, like you say, mitigate or even avoid the risk altogether? Yeah. So the heart of geopolitical risk mitigation is de-risking from known and detected risks. And in that process of de-risking, minimize the onboarding of new risks as you get out of the way. And that's ultimately what we do. And just to add on to that, uh, Roger and Ian, you know, one of the things that's important and, you know, we've, we've hit some of the greatest hits of current geopolitical risks today, and it's it's definitely daunting, especially for smaller companies. But the key is to make a self-assessment. And that's what we can work with our companies or our clients to do is really make an assessment of what your true risk exposure is in this space. What does it truly look like? So what is what are the indirect impacts of some of those geopolitical risk risk events that we described? What's that going to look like for your company? And that really serves as the basis of building a plan to move forward, whether that's entering a new market, expanding operations overseas, or even growing here in the United States. You know, how's that going to impact financing and some of the legal risks associated with what we've described down the road? It all starts with making that self-assessment. Yeah, that, that's what I think of when I look at your company. That's kind of the first thing I think about is just information on entering new markets. Uh, uh, and not only markets, but even sources of supply, because, you know, if it's in a different country, you know, we might not have any idea what's going on over there beyond what's on in the headlines of the paper. Um, so what you're saying is that it's important to understand what the uh, what the culture is like, what the what the what the politics are like, you know, you mentioned corruption before as being a problem for some companies. Uh, and I know, you know, there have been companies that have withdrawn from big, big markets just because of the corruption aspect. Um, and I'm sure you've run into that. So that's that may be the place that's, you know, that, that might be most significant in terms of of the self-assessment for a company, wouldn't you say? I definitely think that's a, that's a great example of where this type of analysis comes into play the most is entering into new markets. And remember, the idea is is really to help push businesses forward. So it's not necessarily avoiding risk altogether, but making sure that you're managing the risks to the utmost ability of your company to then move forward with a profitable situation. So that's definitely an area where we focus is when you jump into a new market, you really need to understand, as you mentioned, the culture, the local customs and norms, but also importantly, who are you actually doing business with? That's much harder to read than it is here in the United States in terms of the history of companies, the history of organizations. A lot of things can be hidden. And so it really requires an intelligence-based deep dive review of what's going on on the ground in those jurisdictions. Yeah, to kind of to kind of jump onto that, like how startups may think about this and how it affects them. There's there's two ways, and I'll give you an example. So one of the things that a lot of American startups, um, one of the reasons we create startups so um, profusely in this country is because our system of finance actually incentivizes radical innovation, <clears throat> meaning 
that our companies are very good at innovating. It's not because Americans are inherently more creative than other parts of the world. It's because the incentives are there to do that. And the reason being is that the way that companies raise money here is through venture capital, capital markets, which are inherently more risk prone as opposed to in other parts of the world where bank financing is very prominent. Uh, that incentivizes much slower incremental uh, innovation, which if you think about it from a security standpoint of intellectual property, uh, it's it's not going to create as juicy of targets as the U.S. will because we're more risk prone. So you get a lot of nonsense that gets created, but you also get a lot of gold, uh, metaphorically speaking. So you can kind of think about new industries like cryptocurrencies, right? You have a lot of cryptocurrencies, uh, companies that are emerging, but all these crypto companies, if you look at the way they talk to each other, it's all about blockchain technology and emerging technology. And it's going to be disruptive and all this other stuff. If you look at the way governments are looking at it, they see it as a monetary phenomenon. And that and and that geopolitical those geopolitical and monetary considerations are going to vary from country to country. That's going to affect regulation and that's going to ultimately affect those companies. They may see themselves as tech companies. That's not the way the governments see them. They see them as monetary companies. And they're wrapping their heads around it through regulation by approaching it in that manner. And a lot of these companies have no idea why that's happening. They can't understand why country X is persecuting them while country Y wants to have them in like El Salvador wants them. China doesn't want them. And they're jumping from country to country. Why they have a big market in India, but India doesn't trust them because India doesn't want capital going to cryptocurrencies. They need it to back the rupee because the rupee has been historically undervalued. So all these different countries are taking these regulatory approaches that are geared and shifted by geopolitical and monetary and even national political trends. And that's going to affect these startups, whether these startups realize it or not. So well, that's the juicy. Yes, right? Yeah. So you can look at Bitcoin's a commodity. Why are they saying it's a commodity? The SEC is saying it's a commodity. Well, it kind of is a little bit like a commodity because there's only like 21 million, I think, that they can create in Bitcoin. But other cryptocurrencies are not going to be seen that way. The SEC is trying to say that they're securities. Why mm -hmm. is that? And look at the way the big banks are approaching these things. These are macroeconomic trends, but they're regulatory and ultimately guided by monetary considerations and political trends. And political. And, and even in the U.S., we'll see, you know, if we see a change in administration, you'll see a new SEC chairman. You might see a completely different approach, which I can see would have a big impact on a lot of companies. Uh, so back in 2017, I had a lot of clients who were doing crypto. I don't have any of them in the U.S. anymore. They're all in foreign countries. And even the foreign countries they went to, all of a sudden they changed, and now they got a regulatory system. So it would have been nice if they'd seen that coming <laughs> before they picked a, picked a horse. Uh, so I, that's why I guess what we're saying is that's why it matters for a startup. You know, you said something else really interesting there, just about the culture of due diligence for startups, especially here in Silicon Valley. It's normally just very, very minimal. That's why you can see some of these big, splashy failures, which um, they make the papers because someone's getting, you know, prosecuted for fraud. But in my mind, those are due diligence failures. Um, somebody didn't really look hard enough. They didn't. Uh, they didn't consider everything that they might have. Some of the VCs were like the crypto is a perfect example. You know, the, the very careful VCs, right? They, you know, they they anticipated what might happen. Uh, and the people who had more FOMO uh, just kind of closed one eye and, you know, took the risk. So I, I, I totally get that. 
Hey, let me ask you about one other thing. You mentioned um, uh, earlier on, you mentioned sanction risk, which I find very, very interesting because I could, I, I mean, we, I see this. We, we saw this last year uh, when the U.S. imposed sanctions against Russia, additional sanctions. And all of a sudden, I no longer had any Russian clients. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm sure people doing business with them probably saw that they disappeared uh, is that the kind of thing that you can see coming? Is that a risk that can be mitigated? Or are we all just kind of taking our chances with some of these countries? Yeah, yeah, no, those absolutely can be mitigated. So if you think about supply chains, and you think about trade and customers, you have a supply chain for your business, even it, even if it's not directly within your operations that go from energy to reaching your customers energy on the one hand and capital accessibility on the one end, all the way to reaching your ultimate customer base. It, within that, you have a whole bunch of relationships that your company has, whether it be through customers directly, through investors, through suppliers. And the problem with sanctions is that sanctions can easily be gotten around. Com companies can move from one country to another. So for example, if you look at bilateral trade with Russia, um, you have a lot of bilateral trade now with Russia and surrounding economies that didn't exist prior to the sanctions. You had like 400% increase in like Kyrgyzstan and Armenia and Turkey and things like that. Um, if you're an American company and you're doing business with any of these other companies in other countries, is that really a Mexican company that you're doing business with? Or is it a Chinese one that just happens to be in Mexico? Is it a Russian company that just so happens to be in Mexico? or in Turkey or Albania, or uh, is there some weird loophole? Is it an Iranian business that you're doing business with in Sicily? It might be. What we can do is unpack that and help you understand whether or not you're actually violating sanctions law. Chris can elaborate on that. Yeah, you know, and, and from an institutional standpoint, it's it's definitely something that if you spend the right amount of time and effort setting up a, a, a monitoring or intelligence analysis program, you really can almost predict where the sanctions will increase and what the sanctions landscape will look like. You know, a lot of the large banks uh, across Wall Street were caught scrambling when we had the Ukraine invasion going on. But if you were really spending time looking at some of the warning factors, looking at what the administration was planning to do, you could have anticipated a lot of the regulatory sanctions that came into play. Um, it's, it's a very complex space. You know, I want to say even within the Russian landscape, space, there's individualized wallets, crypto wallets that are listed now that you have to stay away from. So it's very complex. The key is establishing a way of managing your exposure to that risk and making sure you have a way to monitor what's going on in that space. That's really the key to understanding your sanctions risk. Okay, got it. So is there anything else that, that we haven't touched on that we really should for our typical venture-backed startup company here uh, and the people who invest in them? Any other big things that, because this is a little bit, a little bit different, a little bit new. Um, you know, I, I think something that you mentioned at the, at the beginning of our discussion really, really hit home and you were definitely speaking our language. When you think about due diligence, you really need to make sure you've got a space on your due diligence checklist for looking at geopolitical risk. You know, take that time just to make that assessment upfront before you go into the deal, before you go in and seek more funding to really just make an assessment and make sure that your valuations are holding up to what the true market's going to look like in two or three years. It's honestly pennies on the dollar in a lot of circumstances. 
to just take a little bit of time and really look at what's the next five years going to look like in that situation. Just And I can add to that um, something that we, because we've used this term intelligence, intelligence-based approach, uh, that can kind of give a lot of people who don't know enough about it, this image of you know, leaping over barbed wire fences and breaking into facilities and sort of James Bond stuff. That's not what we do. Intelligence isn't that. Uh, what we do is we have boots on the ground in over 100 countries. What we actually have are collectors in these countries that can collect open sources, verify local knowledge, contextualize knowledge that you're not going to have at a distance. And ultimately, what we do is we collect that knowledge, we integrate it with different sources from different places, different levels of expertise, different experts. We triangulate that. We control for intelligence failures, and we can actually give you an unbiased, contextualized, very up-close look at how a trend or risk is unfolding. We can offer that to our customers, and that gives them something that they wouldn't otherwise have. And that's intelligence. It's value added. It's not just looking at the New York Times, because by the time it gets there, by the time it hits the BBC, it's already too late. So yeah. what intelligence does is it gives you that advanced warning window and gives you more information that you wouldn't otherwise have. And that intelligence-based approach can help you detect risks in advance. It can help you detect opportunities. For example, if Iran democratizes tomorrow or if Putin falls, what happens next? How are you going to be one of the first movers back into that market? Well, right. those are considerations that we that we can offer. Right, things like that, or emerging risks. How is the Argentinian election going to affect uh, the value of the dollar? How is that going to affect your your reshoring efforts to Latin America? You know, these are all things that we can offer. Okay, all right. And with that, I want to thank you for being here today on Ten Thousand Startups: Legal Strategies for Startup Success. I'm Roger Royce, your host. Uh, we've been talking with Dr. Ian Oxnavad and Christopher Mason. Uh, who are with Infortel Worldwide, uh, and they work with uh, global risk management. So thanks again, guys, and we'll see you all next time.